Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I'm reviewing 2008's work of a man picking up the pieces of his life after a horrific accident, a tale of second chances and starting over, Duma Key. As you know, in 1999, Stephen King was hit by a van, an accident that nearly killed him. Clearly, an event like this will fundamentally alter a person, so it's no surprise that he worked through his near-death experience in the pages of Dreamcatcher, The Dark Tower, and Lisey's story. He continues that thread here with Duma Key, which he sets in Florida, a departure from his usual main locations and based on his Floridian winter home that he's shared with Tabitha since the late 1970s. Duma Key was a novel that I've discussed before on the podcast as being one, um, along with Lisey's story, that I just felt that when I read them, when they first came out in the early to mid-2000s, this one came out in 2008, I, uh, I just I couldn't get into. Uh, but then again, at that particular point in my life, I was in my, my early, early to mid-20s. So in 2008, I was you know, um, around 26 years old or so, and I just wasn't really in the, the right, not necessarily state of mind, but I didn't have the life experience that I needed to to fully understand that what he was doing. And anyone that picks up this book wanting a pet cemetery or a Christine or a fire starter or an it, you're going to be disappointed because that's not what he's going for here. He's doing something completely different. He is shifting his his priorities and he's not focusing on the scares he is focusing on the family he's focusing and he's always focused on the characters but he fo he's focusing more on the character's journey and this much like Lisey's story that supernatural part feels almost like an afterthought this is really the story of of um edgar freemantle who is just trying to start over. The life that he has known is completely obliterated in a painful and tragic way. And even though he's still technically alive, the life that he knew was long gone. And it's just really just an exploration of, of what it's like to have to start over in your later years. And everything that, that comes with it, the disappearance of the twins and his supernatural uh, phantom limb and the painting and Percy and the ghost ship and the, the, the ghost water zombies, all of that, it's secondary. It, it doesn't nearly matter as much um, as his relationship with Elizabeth Eastlake and the, the relationship he has with his daughter and the strained relationship he has with his ex-wife and his budding friendship with Wireman. All of that is what it's about. And I feel that almost the, the, the supernatural stuff isn't, I don't want to say it's not welcome, but I don't care about it as much. I care about this guy's life, much in the way that I, I cared more about Lisi than I cared about the Long Boy or Booyah Moon or Blood Bull and any of the other ridiculous <laughs> made-up names that Stephen King created for, for Lisi's story. Um, so this... I've referenced before, um, I, I believe that really beginning with Bag of Bones, which follow, which I, I think started this particular line of thought and exploration, 
Stephen King uh, dips his toes into a, a a more introspective and existential style of writing, where, like I've said, he he doesn't place the focus on the supernatural. The supernatural really is just there to to serve the themes that he's exploring about aspects of life. And so we saw it in Bag of Bones. We saw it most recently in Lisi's story. We see it here in Duma Key. We will see it again in Revival. Uh, in each of these novels, he's he's exploring something. In Bag of Bones, it was about loss um, of of a loved one. In uh, Lisi's story, it was very very similar. They're almost companion novels. It was again the the loss of of a loved one. Here, it's about it's about starting over. It's about creativity, and it's very much about fathers and daughters. In Revival, it's about death and what death means to the living and an obsession with death and a loss of faith. So all of the supernatural things in, in these novels, the, 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 the mystery at Dark Score Lake and, like I said, about Booyah Moon and, and here uh, everything revolving around Percy and in Revival, Charlie and his magic lightning and um, Mother and the ant, <laughs> the ants. Um, they're not, they, these, these plot lines are not as gripping as the, the, the plot lines just simply involving the characters trying to make their way through through the world. So I'm going to get more into this. Duma Key was a novel that I was very curious about getting to because when I first read it, um, I, didn't, I didn't like it as much as I wanted to like it. So I was very, very interested in getting to this, especially after reading Lisi's story, because that was another one that I was looking forward to reading because of everything that I, I had said about how I just wasn't in the right point of life to really get something out of it and I upon reread of Lisi's story I still didn't get a lot out of it I felt that narratively the, the way that it was narratively structured with the, it being the story, the story of Lisi but so much time devoted to, to Scott um, and his story which continues long after Lisi's story is over. I just thought it was a poor narrative choice. I feel like it it, it weakens the novel. And uh, so I, I just wasn't sure that if I was going to feel the same way about Duma Key, if I was going to be disappointed again. So find out uh, in this episode of my review of Duma Key. But before I get any further, I want to read a listener email from Anonymous. And Anonymous writes... Hello, I must first say thank you so much for the podcasts. Please do not stop until you have covered all of the books. I love your analysis of all of the books, but was compelled to regard sorry, was compelled to write regarding one subject that you find very uncomfortable. You have stated that King is not a racist, and I agree wholeheartedly. You know, I've been reading King since I was in junior high school. I started with Carrie and have carried on since then. Truth be told, I think it's been 40 years. That's a long, long time to stick with one author. In all those years, I was never once offended by the use of the N-word. As a black woman, I will tell you this. There are many, many people who do use that word. And there are not young folk who have the new culture of hip-hop music. They're of an older, middle, and young generation who are racists. We have racists in society. It is only realistic, in my view, to include those racists in fictional writing as well. I don't take offense. It gives me a chuckle, actually, because these people only come across as hateful and ignorant. He has never taken a racist and made that person the hero. They are used for fodder, and I love it. 
is the way that I see them as well. When I hear about them or have come across them in my own life, I can only shake my head and chuckle. So, my friend, the next time you come across that word in a Stephen King novel, step back and remember it is not being used in a way to offend. Um, so, I, Anonymous, thank you so much for writing in. It, it, Your voice is so important because I don't... I am never going... In, I could live until I'm 100 years old. And there are so many life experiences that I'm never going to understand simply because of the color of my skin. And because I've had to see the, the, the look in a young person's eye having been called that word, um, I've seen it wound people and I'm just very cognizant of that. Um, and I just, I never knew as, as you probably know in, by listening to these, I, I, I never really knew if I was being overly sensitive or not, but it's, it's why it's important for me to actually hear um, from, from, from someone that's black to just tell me this is, my, this is how I feel and this is, this is what I think. And so, um, so Anonymous, thank you so much. I, I, I just think that it's important. I think that it's important to, to get your, your voice out there. Um, writing in and um anybody else if you have not done so feel free to write in at stephen kingcast at yahoo.com and if you haven't done so already head on over to itunes and leave a review um and uh just a write-up and a subscription because that will go a long way in helping to get the the stephen king cast out there so with all that said i'm going to head back into my review of duma key by reading the wikipedia summary so i will have a basis upon which i can build my analysis Edgar Fremantle, a contractor in St. Paul, Minnesota, barely survives a horrific on-site accident where his truck is crushed by a crane. Fremantle's right arm is amputated, and severe injuries to his head cause Edgar to have problems with speech, vision, and memory. As a result, Edgar also has violent mood swings and thoughts of suicide. During one of these mood swings, he attacks his wife, who later claims that as a main reason why she divorced him. On the advice of his psychologist, Dr. Kamen, Edgar takes a geographical, a year-long vacation meant for rest and further recovery. He decides to rent a beach house on Dumaki, a small island off the west coast of Florida, after reading about it in his travel brochure. Edgar's beach house is located on a part of the island called Salmon Point. Edgar nicknames the house Big Pink because of its rich pink color. On the advice of Dr. Kamen, Edgar revives his old hobby of sketching after he moves into Big Pink. He settles in with the help of Jack Cantori, a local college student. Edgar becomes excessively involved in his art, painting with a furious energy and in a daze. Edgar brings up psychic images in his paintings. He learns that his younger daughter, Ilsa, is engaged to a choir singer and that his ex-wife is having an affair with his former accountant by painting these situations. While exploring the island with a visiting Ilsa, Edgar drives past an elderly woman, Elizabeth Eastlake. Ilsa becomes violently ill as they drive into an overgrown part of the island. Elizabeth later calls Edgar, warning him that Dumaki has never been a lucky place for daughters. Edgar initially disregards the message since Eastlake has Alzheimer's disease. Edgar slowly recuperates, uh, helped in part by taking longer and longer walks along the beach. He slowly approaches and eventually meets and befriends a man in his late 40s whom Fremantle has seen sitting under an umbrella off in the distance. This character, Jerome Wireman, to whom Edgar becomes quite close, is a hired companion for Eastlake. As it turns out during the conversation, Miss Eastlake is a very wealthy woman and owns half of the island while the other half is in subject of dispute. The way Edgar paints 
becomes systematic. He gets a phantom limb sensation and he paints a psychic image. He eventually compiles a large catalog of artwork and is convinced by his friends to try and sell it to an art gallery. He does, and the gallery plans to exhibit his work. While the exhibition is being planned, Edgar gradually begins to understand that his paintings have a paranormal power that allows him to manipulate events, places, and people. But nobody outside of Edgar's close family and friends will ever know this. It is evidenced when one of his paintings removes a bullet that was lodged in Wireman's brain from a previous suicide attempt, and another causes Candy Brown, a man accused of raping and murdering a young girl in a highly publicized case, to die suddenly in his prison cell. Elizabeth advises Edgar that due to the power they possess, his painting should be removed from the island after the exhibition. Elizabeth makes a surprise appearance at the exhibition and after seeing the paintings herself for the first time becomes distressed and tells Edgar a number of things, including that the table is leaking. Elizabeth suffers a violent seizure as she is trying to tell Edgar this and dies in the hospital soon after. Edgar suspects that the entity, Percy, silenced Elizabeth. When Edgar returns to Duma the next day, he discovers that Big Pink was broken into and finds a canvas with Where's Our Sister sprawled on it, left in the house along with the footprints of an adult and two children. He soon discovers that those in possession of his paintings either die or become possessed by Percy and carry out her deeds, which mainly include killing people close to Edgar. Most notably, Mary Eyre, who had purchased one of the series of the Girl and Ship paintings, breaks into Ilsa's apartment and kills her by drowning her in the bathtub just minutes after Ilsa burns the end of the game at Edgar's request. Mary Eyre commits suicide and almost instantly thereafter. Edgar begins to realize that his paintings are connected to tragic events in Miss Eastlake's childhood. Edgar discovers, through both his paintings and the drawings done by a young Elizabeth after she had suffered a head injury and began drawing herself, that Elizabeth had inadvertently used her paintings to discover a figurine off the coast of Dumaki. This figurine, of a red-cowled woman, used the young Elizabeth to begin changing the reality around her. Elizabeth tried to use her power to destroy the figurine by drawing it and then erasing it. This only enraged the entity Persephone, which then killed Elizabeth's twin sister by leading them into the surf and drowning them. A young Elizabeth, with the help of her nanny, eventually discovered that the entity could be neutralized by drowning her in fresh water, and Elizabeth was able to do this by placing the figurine in a cask that is sealed in a cistern under the original house on Dumaki. Intent on putting a stop to Percy following the death of his beloved daughter, Edgar, along with Wireman and Jack, travels to the house that Elizabeth lived in as a child, which is now overgrown by thick, unnatural vegetation. They manage to find the figurine and are able to contain it in fresh water inside one of their flashlights. Later, Edgar takes the flashlight back to Big Pink, where his daughter Ilsa begins to form out of the sand and seashells under the house. The entity offers Edgar immortality and forgetfulness in exchange for the flashlight. Edgar, however, has a different flashlight and tricks the entity into masquerading as his daughter to get close enough to him that he can destroy it. Later, Edgar drops the figurine into one of the freshwater lakes of Minnesota. The book ends with Edgar starting his final painting, A Storm Destroying Dumaki. So guys, analysis. I'm going to get into it by simply reading um, the very, very beginning. One thing that you should know, in this novel, in between each of the chapters of the book, King includes an interlude, uh, and each interlude is entitled How to Draw a Picture, and each of these particular interludes wind up painting a picture, so to speak, of Elizabeth Eastlake's uh, life. But I just wanted to start by reading the, the first How to Draw a Picture. 
draw how to draw a picture. One, start with a blank surface. It doesn't have to be paper or canvas, but it should be white. We call it white because we need a word, but its true name is nothing. Black is the absence of light. But what is white but the absence of memory, the color of can't remember? How do we remember to remember? That's a question I've asked myself often since my time on Duma Key, often in the small hours of the morning, looking up into the absence of light, remembering absent friends. Sometimes, in those little hours, I think about the horizon. You have to establish the horizon. You have to mark the white. A simple enough act, you might say, but any act that remakes the world is heroic. Or so I've come to believe. Imagine a little girl, hardly more than a baby. She fell from a carriage almost 90 years ago, struck her head on a stone, and forgot everything. Not just her name, everything. And then one day she recalled just enough to pick up a pencil and make that first hesitant mark across the white. A horizon line, sure, but also a slot for blackness to pour through. Still, imagine that small hand lifting the pencil, hesitating, and then marking the white. Imagine the courage of that first effort to reestablish the world by picturing it. I will always love that little girl, in spite of all she has cost me. I must. I have no choice. Pictures are magic, you know. I mean, this is a wonderful opening. And through the character um, that Edgar is talking about painting, it's also King talking about writing. The tone is expertly wrapped up in these few short paragraphs. It's wistful, it's hopeful, there's a sense of loss and starting over again. Everything that you need to know about this book and what you're going to get out of this book is done in one page in one, two, three, four paragraphs. I mean, that is the strength of King distilled to its, it, its most basic form. Chapter 1, My Other Life. So... Since King's 1999 near-death experience, he has written about either a, a significant death or the rehabilitation caused by a near-death experience in From a Buick 8, Dreamcatcher, uh, Lisi's Story, The Dark Tower. It's here in Dumaki where King is fully able to explore the ramifications of his car crash where Edgar bears the brunt of his real-life suffering and becomes an alternate what-if version of King. What if his marriage didn't withstand the sacrifices caused by the accident? With Edgar, we see this scenario brought to the forefront, and King makes that explicitly clear in the opening pages. When I say I was mentally impaired, I mean that at first I didn't know who people were, even my wife, or what happened. I couldn't understand why I was in such pain. I can't remember the quality of that pain now, four years later. I know that I suffered it, and I know that it was excruciating, but it's all pretty academic. It wasn't academic at the time. At the time, it was like being in hell and not knowing why you were there. Look, <laughs> I hope never to be in this experience. I don't have the capability of imagining what it must be like, but, but thankfully for all of us, King is incredibly vivid in his description, so he's able to place us in this particular hell of pain and frustration. And these first few opening chapters of this book are among the most engrossing reads that I've ever had in a Stephen King experience because I just feel like this was such an entryway into the man's personal life that you get to really experience something that... Like I said, I never want to experience, but he puts us in there. He puts himself out there, and it is thrilling, and it's awful, and it's, you just can't 
put the book down. He just so effectively paints a world of confusion in the months of rehab that follow, where Edgar can't make sense of his words and thoughts. He's so effective in a short amount of time that he manages to convey sympathy for both Edgar and his wife, Pam, who is leaving him. And this is huge because this is presented through Edgar's point of view. So it'd be easy for the perspective to be distorted, but it's not. You completely understand why she has to leave. This is a messy, messy, complicated situation that some people are not meant to handle. Edgar has attacked her. He does remember doing it. According to her, he's changed. These are the sad truths that must come up a lot in the days following tragedy. And even though Edgar receives his injuries in a different manner than King had done, he still manages to work in a car accident when a neighbor's dog is struck down by a car. How to draw a picture too. Here, King begins to lay the background of the central mystery of the novel of the haunted past of Dumaki. Chapter 2, Big Pink. Now, I don't know if King has ever written a lonelier character and chapter, and that includes the entirety of The Gunslinger. Edgar's relocation to Dumaki is just straight up sad. He's alone, wounded, trying to stay optimistic. It's a potent scene that isn't haunted or tense or supernatural. But it isn't without a sense of hope, as here in the dusk of his first night in Big Pink, his artist's eye captures the horizon, the ship which sails upon it, cruising through a world of colors found only in dreams. The painting is his first picture, entitled Hello. This is King as most cautiously optimistic, and there's a gentle, quiet beauty to it. As Edgar says to himself, this was here all the time, I thought, and recalled something Melinda used to say when she heard a song she really liked on the radio. It had me from hello. Below my rudimentary tanker, I scratched the word hello in small letters. So far as I can remember, and I'm better at that now, it was the first time in my life I named a picture. And as names go, it's a good one, isn't it? In spite of all of the damage that followed, I still think that's the perfect name for a picture drawn by a man who was trying his best not to be sad anymore, who was trying to remember how it felt to be happy. Chapter 3, Drawing on New Resources Edgar begins to heal. We learn that, um, you know, he walks, and somehow the healing and his drawing and the walks are all wrapped up together. We're almost 100 pages in, and we haven't had a trace of the supernatural. And if you were to tell me that there was no supernatural aspects to the story, I'd be excited, because the story of Edgar itself is more thrilling in its own way, with little emotional minefields to keep us going, such as the possibility of a fight in regards to Christmas with the ex, or the brave little truth, such as the fact that he has a favorite daughter. And while that favorite daughter, Ilsa, visits Edgar for Christmas, they go exploring, which allows King to provide the geography of Dumaki and shows us that um, there's a section of Dumaki that is basically a jungle-like environment and it will set the stage for the, the, the final chapter of the novel itself. When Ilsa leaves, Edgar receives a puzzling and kindly threatening message about how Dumaki has never been kind to daughters and... So now, the mystery is on. How to draw a picture three. 
We are learning more and more through these interludes, and the style of text should invoke the earliest parts of the novel where the narrative reflected Edgar's broken thoughts. Chapter 4, Friends with Benefits. Here, Edgar meets a character King has clearly fallen in love with, and that's Wireman, as he'd been referenced since the very, very beginning of the novel. And it's a very nice meeting, with Mike approaching him, um, sorry, with Edgar approaching Mike, Wireman, closer and closer. Why did I say Mike? So it's a nice meeting, with Edgar approaching him closer and closer on his daily walks, with Wireman noticing him, and each day from there on out, Edgar spots not just one chair, but two chairs and two classes. And then Wireman offers to drive Edgar back in a golf cart after Edgar turns back to Big Pink. King writes, I smiled at that. Ilsa had been in favor of a golf cart so I could go racing up and down the beach, scaring the peeps. Not in the game plan, I yelled, but I'll get there in time. Whatever's in that picture, keep it on ice for me. You know best, muchacho, he sketched a little salute. Meantime, do the day and let the day do you. I remember all sorts of things Wire Man said, but I believe that that's the one I associate with him the most strongly. Maybe because I heard him say it before I knew his name or had even shaken his hand. Do the day, and let the day do you. Afterwards, Edgar researches phantom limb cases and situations where the loss of limbs result with psychic phenomenon. Edgar then writes an email to his ex-wife in a syntactical exhibition of cleverness. First, despite his one hand, Edgar drafts a well-written, correctly spelled email that is responded to by Pam, who despite having both hands, misspells nearly every other word. Visually, her email is a lot worse to look at. Then, she points out something that I hadn't noticed, that despite the careful composition of Edgar's email, it's full of logical errors, what we have seen from him when he was trying to uh, communicate after his accident. Things get weird as Edgar realizes that he can feel, feel his missing arm and that it has some, physic, some physicality with the rest of the world. And after another painting, he realizes that his wife has been sleeping with his best friend. Chapter 5, Wire Man. King writes a very forced, yet very endearing, introduction to the Wire Man. In a nutshell, it's King writing a comedic scene, which is never as funny as the characters in the scene think that it is. And while you might smile from the joy they're having, it always feels like there's a number missing in the equation, some essential detail missing in the setup because the punchline never lands. The chapter concludes with the vision of the corpse of Tom Riley, dead by his own hand. Chapter six, the lady of the house. Here, um, Edgar fills Wireman in on his portentous vision and proceeds to meet Elizabeth Eastlake. In her house, he spots a sketch nearly identical to the one first brought to life on his first night in Big Pink. The sketch originated by none other than Salvador Dali. Soon after, when reading a poem to Mrs. Eastlake, Edgar gets choked up, which culminates in the reading of a stanza that functions as a theme that will run throughout the novel. I wouldn't want to be faster or greener than now if you were with me. Oh, you were the best of all my days. That really is a beautiful line. And it's really a beautiful moment in the novel. Um, it means something to the characters, and King writes it with such goddamn beauty that it really, you know, it, it, 
Personally, it hit me pretty hard. I wouldn't want to be faster or greener than now if you were with me. Oh, you were the best of all my days. I mean, this encapsulates Edgar in this moment. A man desperately trying to hope that this will apply to him. That there can be a second chance. That he can have a do-over. And he's so... He doesn't put it out there. He never he never whines about it. He never complains about what happens to him. Like he he accepts it. He's so gracious. Yes, he gets angry. Uh but he never wallows in his self-pity. He just keeps an open mind despite the horrors and tragedy that continue to pile up on him. And really is an examination on perseverance and optimism. How to draw a picture for the past and the present uh, present have finally met like the sea in the sky at the horizon line. Now we know that these little interludes tell us of Elizabeth, the old woman who in these flashbacks is a little girl who has suffered an injury. And it becomes clear that while she recuperated with a growing ability of art, her doll begins to talk, which immediately should throw up warning signs as Edgar in the present also has a doll. Chapter 7, Art for Art's Sake. Alright, so remember earlier when I said that King made sure to paint both Edgar and Pam favorably? Well, I, I completely take that back. While it's one thing to portray a flaw within a character who can't rise to the occasion of rehabilitating a severely injured spouse, every subsequent description, um, description of the character of Pam has devolved into more and more of a shrew. She's combative for the sake of being combative. She's mean-spirited. She's narrow-minded. She's cruel to Ilsa. She's vicious to Edgar and dense. He calls her to discuss the premonition of Tom Riley to save his life. And she won't get out of her own way. It is an ugly, mean scene with her coming across not only as vindictive, but thoroughly selfish and even homophobic. Later, Edgar realizes that Wireman has the ability to do a little mind reading and has a vision of him in the past contemplating suicide. The rest of the chapter unfolds um, in in a, in both the the natural and the supernatural with beautiful descriptions of the Floridian Ocean at night under the full moon. Edgar steps into the world of professional art where his hobby has been validated as legitimate talent. He watches Wireman in a seizure and gets another portentous warning from Eastlake about how Ilsa must not return to Dumaki. Chapter 8, Family Portrait. Pam and Edgar have two more truly awful conversations in which she is simply a terrible human being, thoroughly stubborn and refusing to believe Edgar's abilities despite the mounting evidence that he has psychic flashes drawn throughout his work. How to Draw Picture 5, we learn more of Naveen, Elizabeth's talking doll from her youth. Chapter 9, Candy Brown. King starts to lay on the tension, with ominous phrasings of Edgar beginning the ship paintings and the death of Tina Garibaldi. From here, he goes on to describe, in a dream, a wonderfully detailed image of the ghost ship, and... I gotta say, being a huge fan of John Carpenter's The Fog and of Ghost Pirates... I love ghost ships, and the idea of a rotting carcass of a ship sailing on sea, I just love that King is tackling this. It's not original, certainly, but you can't say that it isn't fun. 
Anytime you introduce the ocean into a story, you invoke mysteries of the deep, a natural landscape filled with secrets, an alien world that we weren't designed to live in, a world of real-life monsters. King is giving us, you know, he has given us terrestrial threats since book one, but he has never ventured into the mysteries of the ocean. So for that alone, Duma Key is definitely worth reading. And then as for the, the, the dream itself, um, King writes, The dream wasn't exactly a nightmare, but it was vivid beyond my power to describe in words, although I captured some of the feeling on canvas. Not all, but some. Enough, maybe. It was sunset. In that dream and all the ones which followed, it was always sunset. Vast red light filled the west, reaching high to heaven where it faded first to orange, then to a weird green. The gulf was nearly dead calm, with only the smallest and glassiest of rollers crossing its surface like respiration. And the reflected sunset glare, it looked like a huge socket filled with blood. Silhouetted against that furnace light was a three-masted derelict. The shop's rotted sails hung limp, with red fire glaring through the holes and rips. There was no one alive on board. You only had to look to know that. There was the feeling of hollow menace about the thing, as though it had been housed, as as though it had housed some plague that had burned through the crew, leaving only this rotting corpse of wood, hemp, and sailcloth. I remember feeling that if a gull or pelican flew over it, the bird would drop dead on the deck with its feathers smoking. Floating about forty yards away was a small rowboat. Sitting in it was a girl, her back to me. Her hair was red, but the hair was false. No live girl had a tangled yarn hair like that. What gave her, what gave away her identity was the dress that she wore. It was covered with tic-tac-toe grids and the painted words, I win, you win, over and over again. Ilsa had that dress when she was four or five, about the age of the twin girls and the famous portrait I'd seen on the second floor landing of El Palacio de Esionos. Um, and, you know, he continues, but I just, I love that description of, of the ghost ship. From there, a news story of a murdered girl prompts Wireman to tell his tragic tale of his daughter and wife and how they both died on the same day. Wireman's story is terrible and showcases the randomness of life and the cruelty that comes with it. His attempted suicide results in an interesting living situation for the character. The bullet is still lodged in his brain and is sinking deeper. This all culminates with Edgar painting a picture of Candy Brown, a picture which causes the death of the child killer who suffocates in his sleep because Edgar hadn't painted a nose or a mouth. Chapter 10, The Bubble Reputation. Edgar continues to flex the muscles of his phantom limb, this time not to heal, sorry, not to kill, but to heal, specifically Wireman, by removing the bullet from his brain. He paints furiously one night while storm rages, and he's visited by the ghosts of the East Lake twins. Who would think that a scene about painting would be so enthralling, but King is great at this, and it doesn't hurt that he weaves in the horror element to it. So he writes, The muscles hung loose and flabby, 
there was no scar, no seam except the tan line, but below, the, but below there it itched like the old dry fire. Then the lightning flashed again and there was no arm. There had never been an arm, not on Dumaki at least, but the itch was still there. So bad it made you want to bite a piece out of something. I turned back to the canvas and the second I did, the itch poured in that direction like water let out of a bag and the frenzy fell on me. The storm dropped on the key as the dark came down and I thought of certain circus acts where the guy throws knives blindfolded at a pretty girl spread-eagled on a spinning wooden platter and I think that I laughed because I was painting blindfold or almost. Every now and then the lightning would flash and Wireman would leap at me. Wireman at 25, Wireman before Julia, before Esmeralda, before La Loteria. I win, you win. A huge flash of lightning lit my window purple-white and a great gooping gust of gale rode that electricity in from the gulf driving rain against the glass so hard I thought in the part of my mind still capable of thought that it must surely break. A munitions dump exploded directly overhead, and beneath me the murmur of the shells had become the gossip of dead things telling secrets in bone voices. How could I have not have heard that before? Dead things? Yes. A ship had come here, a ship of the dead with rotted sails, and it had offloaded living corpses. They were under this house, and the storm had brought them to life. I could see them pushing up through the boneyard blanket of shells, pallid jellies with green hair and seagull eyes, crawling over each other in the dark and talking, talking, talking. Yes, because they had a lot to catch up on, and who knew when the next storm might come to bring them to life again. Yet I still painted. I did it in terror and in the dark, my arm moving up and down, so for that a little while there I could actually seem to be conducting the storm. I couldn't have stopped. And at some point, Wireman Looks West was done. My right arm told me so. I slashed my initials EF in the lower corner and then broke the brush in two using both hands to do it. The pieces dropped on the floor. I staggered away from my easel, crying out for whatever was going on to stop. And it would. Surely it would. The picture was done, and surely now it would stop. I came to the head of the stairs and looked down, and there at the bottom were two small dripping figures. I thought, apple, orange. I thought, I win, you win. And then the lightning flashed, and I saw two girls of about six, surely twins, and surely Elizabeth Eastlake's drowned sisters. They wore dresses that were plastered to their bodies. Their hair was plastered to their cheeks. Their faces were pale horrors. I knew where they had come from. They had crawled out of the shells. They started up the stairs toward me, hand in hand. Thunder exploded a mile overhead. I tried to scream. I couldn't. I thought, I am not seeing this. I thought, I am. I can do this, one of the girls said. She spoke in the voice of the shells. It was red, the other girl said. She spoke in the voice of the shells. They were halfway up now. Their hands were little more than skulls with wet hair dragging down their sides. Sit in the char, they said together, like girls chanting a skip rope rhyme. But they spoke in the voice of the shells. Sit in the burn. They reached up for me with their terrible fish belly fingers. I fainted at the head of the stairs. Um, how awesome is that? <laughs> so, how to draw a picture six. We are given the moment when Elizabeth's father discovers the doll. Chapter 11, View from Duma. Wire Man, now fully healed, no longer has telepathy. But more importantly, he sees the painting that Edgar had made for him. 
And King writes one of the most profound pieces I have ever recalled him reading, and that's on page 369. Is it you, wire man? I was honestly curious. Yes? No. He stood looking at it a moment longer, then he turned to me. It's how I wanted to be. Maybe it's how I was, on the few best days of my best year. He added, almost reluctantly, my most idealistic year. All right. So I remember reading it the first time. It hit me hard. I was around, like I said, 27 at the time. Um, and I remember it really hitting me. Because I knew at that moment that how I felt and looked would be the image in a portrait of me if Edgar had painted me in my best few days of my best year. It was along this, it was it was this along with a quote from Jack Ketchum, uh, Jack Ketchum in his novel Red, um, in which he discussed how he discusses how passion can't last very long. And I realized that at that moment, the mode that I was in at that moment of time, which was a, a very um, so a very physically fit, very emotionally healthy, uh, the, just the whole nine yards. Just I was at my most self-disciplined. Um, I was eating right. I was exercising regularly. Um, like I said, I was very, very disciplined. Um, I, I knew when I read this, I knew that when I read Red, I knew that it wasn't going to last. Um, and just a, a side note, like that makes it sound like my life is terrible now. It's not. I mean, I mean, life is a is a constant, um, constant series of of you, you just you just keep on learning, right? So I mean, I learned about balance um, and the and the, the happiness that that comes with a a less just a, just a balance. Like I I didn't need to be on ten all the time, right? I was just like just gunning at ten. Now I've dialed it down and I'm able to enjoy. A more balanced life than I was then, but at that time, I just there there was a realization that I I would that that line would always stick with me. I knew that then; it still hits me now. And if I were to read Duma Key later on in life, which I might do when I'm when I'm Edgar's age, I feel that it's even going to have more profundity. What follows immediately after is a conversation between Edgar and Wireman that is touching and heartbreaking and complicated. Wireman asks if Edgar could change the accident that took his arm, would he change it? Edgar answers yes, and what follows isn't melodramatic, and King doesn't spend much time with it because he doesn't have to. He lets the reader do the work for them because we have been there with Wireman and Edgar. By saying yes, he'd change it, Edgar is diminishing his friendship with Wireman, and more importantly, he's saying that Saving Wireman's life is not worth the pain that he endured. Again, he doesn't spend too long with it, but it's important for the characters to have this on this conversation because Edgar, at this point in the novel, is finding both success and happiness. And with half a book left, King needs to make matters complicated for our characters as he continues to grow on this journey to self-discovery in his quest to start over. He's doing it at this moment. But the past is too close, symbolically hammered home by the emergence of the long-dead twins. Though they died decades before, their reappearance reinforces where Edgar is at that moment. 
Their friendship leads to a wonderfully well-written argument between the two where Wireman gives Edgar a verbal kick in the ass by revealing that a lot of people have invested both trust, finances, and belief in Edgar's second act as an artist, and Edgar owes it to everyone to do more than just drag his heels. It is a great scene that is charged with tension, but a lot of love. Wireman reveals a whole world from Edgar's previous life of people who still love him and want to celebrate with him, and King stresses the selfishness of Edgar for not allowing his family and friends and former co-workers to do just that. There's no ghosts or mysteries here, guys. Just the realities of life playing out between, between two friends. And it's beautifully written. After a few phone calls home to the people in his life, it's time for his lecture and man, King nails this moment of nervousness that comes before a big moment like this. It's a great celebratory scene for Edgar that concludes with the ominous gift of a doll from Dr. Kamen. Now Edgar has two, one for each dead twin from Dumaki's past. Chapter 12, Another Florida. The mystery surrounding Elizabeth, her father, and the two dead girls, Stephen Kingism, deepens with the reveal of East Lake's original house, which is now overgrown by the flora and fauna that Edgar had experienced earlier. How to draw a picture seven. With this interlude, we see what's happening to the twins um, as they are victims of reality rewriting itself with an upside down talking bird, rapidly changing skies, and uh, razor toothed frogs that chase them. They are chased into the surf where they try to swim towards the boat, which becomes a nightmare, and it is terrifying. Meanwhile, a vagary of the rip is sweeping Tessie straight for the ship and holding her up at the same time. For a few magical moments, it's, it's as though she's on a surfboard and her weak dog paddle seems to be propelling her like an outboard motor. Then, just before, a, just before a colder current reaches up and coils around her ankles, she sees the ship change into. Here's a picture I did paint not once, but again and again and again. The whiteness of the hull doesn't exactly disappear. It is sucked inward like blood fleeting the cheek of a terrified man. The ropes fray. The bright work dulls. The glass in the windows of the aft cabin burst outward. A junk heap clutter appears on the decking rolling into existence from fore to aft except that it was there all along tessie just didn't see it now she sees now she believes a creature comes from below decks it creeps to the railing where it stares down at the girl it is a slumped thing in a hooded red robe hair that might not be hair at all flutters dankly around a melted face yellow hands grip splintered plunky wood then, one lifts slowly and waves to the girl who will soon be gone. It says, come to me, child. And, drowning, Tessie Eastlake thinks, it's a woman. She sinks. And she does, and does she still, and does she feel still warm hands, those of her freshly dead sister gripping her calves and pulling her down? Yes, of course, of course she does. Believing is also feeling. Any artist will tell you so. Chapter 13, The Show. 
The chapter begins with a beautiful description of Edgar's reunion with his family and how it's a memory he keeps. This should cause alarm within the reader as we are now asking why? Why is he holding on to this memory? What happens later? Until then, things were looking up and up. At the show, Edgar's paintings sell out immediately for a total of half a million dollars. Elizabeth makes an incredible return to the social circle that she had formed and ruled for decades in order to see Edgar's work. And she is toured through his Girl and Boat series. She begins to grow manic. The, par the party is completely unspooled from her ravings. Um, and, and, and the danger is just hammered home here. She confirms what Edgar had feared, that there is something wrong with these pictures and there are screaming faces underneath the surface of the water in each of them. Just before she has what looks to be a stroke, she warns Edgar that she is awake and the attack that follows is less of a stroke and more along the lines of Percy trying to shut her up, Percy being the villain of the piece. Elizabeth dies and it's a death that connects. King has built her up wonderfully, brought to life with a handful of impactful scenes and through the eyes of Wireman. King closes the chapter bittersweetly with a temporary reunion between Edgar and Pam while Edgar is mourning the loss of Elizabeth. Now, I just can't help but think that is, if this had been a younger King, we would get a full description of the entire sex scene. But now older, he captures the emotion leading up to it and places us in the shoes of Edgar and Pam so he doesn't have to describe the, the physical part itself. It's all about the emotional piece. I think that as he got older, I think that King kind of realized what, what it's all about. How to draw a picture, eight. Now that Percy has taken her first victim in the present day with just over 200 pages to go, it's time for King to begin building up the threat level. In this interlude, we're given some insight into Percy. King describes the big boy who we'd already seen chasing the girls in a previous chapter, the things that live in water and something named Charlie. Chapter 14, The Red Basket. Here we go. The dread that has been creeping around the edges of the narrative comes rushing in to drown the reader. Throughout the entire story, there's been a melancholia in Edgar's telling of it. Despite the joys that have come with his new life, it's tinged with sadness. Another novel might have celebrated the reunion between Edgar and Pam, but this was a moonlight spectral visitation. And he drops the bomb on us that we have probably known that was coming, that something is going to happen to Ilsa when he drops her off at the airport and tells us that he never sees her again. This is brutal, guys as their relationship is among the more powerful relationships that King has ever, ever committed to paper. And that includes Jake and Roland, Roland and Eddie, Eddie and Susanna, Roland and Cuthbert, Roland and Susanna, a lot of stuff from the Dark Tower, Arnie and Lee, Arnie and Dennis, Tom and Nick, Charlie and Andy, Ralph and Lois, the list goes on. Um, I, I, Jack and Wolf, uh, Jack and, and, and Speedy, um, but anyway, before we find out what happens, we discover that Big Pink has been visited the night before by ghostly intruders, and Edgar begins to unravel Elizabeth's long-buried secrets by discovering her long-lost drawings, which also reveals the ship that he had been drawing himself. I flicked back to the picture of the screaming man, 
Old dried watercolors rattled like bones. Beneath the screaming father was the ship again, only this time it really was my ship, my Percy. Elizabeth had painted it at night, and not with a brush, I could still see the ancient dried prints of her child's fingers in the swirls of gray and black. This time it was as if she had finally seen through the Percy's disguise. The boards were splintered, the sails drooping and full of holes. Around her, blue in the light of a moon that did not smile or send out happy rays, Hundreds of skeleton arms rose from the water in a dripping salute, and standing on the foredeck was a baggy, pallid thing, vaguely female, wearing a decayed something that might have been a cloak, a winding shroud, or a robe. It was the red robe, my red robe, only seen from the front. Three empty sockets peered from its head, and its grin outran the sides of its face in a crazy jumble of lips and teeth. It was far more horrible than my girl and ship paintings because it went straight to the heart of the matter without any pause for the mind to catch up. This is everything awful, it said. This is everything you ever feared to find waiting in the dark. See how its grin races off its face in the moonlight? See how the drowned salute it. Chapter 15, Intruder With the quote-unquote real-life stuff already established, King knows he can head into Spook City, which he does when Edgar first sees the ghost ship Percy anchored outside his window and the discovery of an intruder in his kitchen. Things get very weird very fast. The fact that the supernatural had been playing on the periphery for so long makes this cannonball plunge so striking. It almost feels like it's coming from another book. The intruder is more than just a ghost. It's more of a waterlogged zombie with a manacle clapped around its wrist whose other end is intended for Edgar. This isn't a visiting spirit, but a corpse with ill intent. Wireman comes to the rescue, and it isn't as if he just scares it away. In fact, it becomes more aggressive, and the threat is so out of the realm of normalcy, it's delicious. Edgar is almost abducted by this monster, almost taken to the ship of the dead, where he would rot away for all eternity. He escapes it, but it keeps escalating with a phone call to a possessed Tom Riley who is threatening to kill Pam. Thankfully, Tom manages to kill himself before it happens, and Edgar tries to come up with a plan to stop Percy. How to Draw a Picture 9 uh, King just continues to tease Ilse's death. It's awful. Chapter 16, End of the Game um, end of the game. Edgar has the realization that Ilsa has taken one of Edgar's pictures, which allows Percy to gain control of his favorite daughter. Through the phone, Edgar manages to talk to his drug daughter into burning the picture, which works. Yet despite this, he again reminds us that the end is coming and they never talk again. What happens next is one of the most sudden, awful things that King has ever given us. After a portentous vision of the washed-ashore tennis balls, which signal that the painting is coming true and therefore Ilse's death, Edgar races home and finds the answering machine has a message. King does not draw this out. The time for drawing out the dread has passed. Here, the thundercloud rips open and outpours the misery. It is truly awful, guys. It's hard to read just boom it's like this just pam confirms that ilsa's dead and that mary Iyer in a possessed state found her and killed her it is so jarring it is so affecting it's right up there with the death of gage creed right gage of course 
tugged at our heartstrings because of the tragedy of the loss of an entire life. Ilsa, older, presents a different death, but because of the love between her and her father was one of the most beautiful relationships he had ever crafted, it makes us a, such a difficult reading experience. It is a truly brutal read with just truth bombs flying left and right. You might not have liked Pam at points during the novel, but you completely understand her when uh, she's just teeing off on Edgar. So Edgar says, Pam, something very bad is happening on this island. I, and she just cuts him off and says, do you think I care about that, Edgar? Or about why that woman did it? You got our daughter killed. I don't ever want to talk to you again. I don't ever want to see you again. I'd rather poke out my eyes than ever have to look at another pictures of yours. You should have died when that crane hit you. There was an awful thoughtfulness in her voice. That would have been a happy ending. Ugh. I mean, it's just awful. It's awful. It's just so, it's so hard. It's just so hard to read. But you can't help. You can't help it, but read it. Chapter 17, The South End of the Key. Edgar, Jack, and Wireman head to Elizabeth's childish home, sorry, childhood home to put an end to Percy's rule. Their journey through the jungle to the old house is fun, but I'm going to say it, it's very underwhelming. I mean, we get ghost lawn jockeys, um, which is weird, but then they're attacked by an alligator. Now, if I was attacked by an alligator in real life, I'd be terrified, but I'm also living in the real world, and this is as close to a monster that we're going to get in the real world, right? But Dumaki is not the real world. It's a Stephen King novel, so I expect actual monsters. I mean, they just stepped into Percy's home base. What if they arrived at Heron's Roost and stepped into the aquatic equivalent of Tax Desert from the Regulators? What if the house was sitting at the bottom of the sea? What if they stepped through the jungle and found themselves on the pirate ship? I mean, the, the novel never goes there, and so I just... You know, I mean, I, you could make a, uh, you know, the metaphor that it takes the wind out of your sails. Uh, and I, I think that to some level it does. He never fully explores the imagination. And for a novel all about painting and exploring your imagination on the canvas, he doesn't give us that. He doesn't let his imagination just explode for us. And we've seen his imagination explode before. So I just find the ending here very, very lacking. Chapter 18, Novene. So, my criticism of the ending uh, is in full swing here, and it's going to continue a little bit. Uh, so, with Stephen King, uh, there's just some things that you have to accept. Um, whether it's, I don't know, giant balls of teeth eating time itself, or a small-town cop using shadow puppetry to beat the devil. There are elements to Stephen King's books that seem outlandish, past the point of suspension of disbelief. But what happens here... To me, this goes a bit too far. Now, Edgar has brought Wireman to the source of evil, along with Jack, a character who until this point could be removed from the story, and it wouldn't change the story at all. And despite not having any previous acknowledgement of ventriloquism, uh, which would have turned this scene into a payoff, this character out of the blue just turns out to be a ventriloquist, which allows him to be able to communicate with the discovered doll known as Naveen. Now, what makes this even worse is that Naveen comes equipped with the dialect of Nan Melda, the African-American housekeeper with lines like, Ain't you gonna draw nothing? Put me up again the bread box, that do fine. 
effectively turning Novine into Franklin from Arrested Development. Um, if you don't know who Franklin is, well, <coughs> shame on you guys. Arrested Development is one of the best television shows ever crafted. And no, the fourth season is not as bad as people make it out to be. I completely applaud Mitch Hurwitz for how he wove that particular season, how it was so narratively different from what came before it. And I'm frustrated because I feel that people bully the fourth season. Anyway, everyone should watch Arrested Development, but if you don't feel like it and you want to know what I'm talking about when it comes to Noveen, just Google Franklin Arrested Development uh, and just pull it up on YouTube because that's what you get here. After a conversation with Noveen, uh, Edgar is urged to draw. Um, but what and why aren't really clear, and it reveals the failings of this ending. There's just too much unknown about Percy, her defining characteristics, or her threat level to fully buy into this. We're never really sure what's going on or what Edgar's about to do. In Salem's Lot, the conclusion was clear. Stake a vampire. In The Shining, we knew that Danny either had to escape or kill his possessed father. Um, in Cujo, we know that Donna had to either die in the car or stand her ground against the dog. Because the king, because king had established the physicality of the St. Bernard, we know the danger and can, and can predict the possible outcomes. In Christine, we know that the end is going to be difficult because he already established how the car can heal itself and how the ghost of Roland LeBay is a wild card. In it, he had established the premise of the ritual of Chud. The list goes on. In previous novels, he had carefully defined his villains, their power, and their intent so that we have a basic understanding of where the story can go. However, with Percy, we just don't know. She has some ability over reality, but how much? We don't know. She's a doll, maybe? But not the doll that was just talking to us. But she's also a ghost ship, right? And a skeletal woman on that ship? And for some reason, the ghost of the housekeeper was still a part of that doll, but not the doll that could be Percy, but the other one? And now Edgar knows that he has to draw, draw what? And why? If he could just draw the conclusion, why does it have to be here and not in Dumaki? Why do you have to venture forth to Heron Roost other than because the plot demanded him to? You see what I'm saying? Like, there's just, there's too much, too much, too much ambiguity, too much um, of the ending is just not defined for us to, to have any parameter in which to make predictions. Therefore, that it pulls us out of the reading experience. It's it's just too loose. There's too much. There's just not a lack. I mean, sorry. There is a lack of rules. Rules are important when it comes to um, to, to novels, and it's why um, fantasy and a lot of horror gets written off by people that tend to prefer sci-fi because in sci-fi there are rules and within those rules there comes tension not here and this is this is probably a great example of why rules need to work with rules you have expectation based on what the author has given to us and then you can either play into that expectation you can subvert that expectation to create tension here there's just too much unknown um, so I'm just not invested in this ending at all. How to draw a picture, 10. We get a quick scene of the twins, now agents of Percy, drowning an innocent man. Chapter 19, April of 27. Now after having gone into a fugue, drawn with his ghost arm, Edgar comes back as the sun begins to set, and they realize that they have to submerge Percy in fresh water. Why? We're never told. How to draw a picture, 11. 
And now we get the full picture here of the heroic actions of Nan Melda before she was Franklin from Arrested Development as she tries to keep her family safe from the creature that was coming for them. In a chaotic turn of events, John Eastlake shoots his oldest daughter in the throat while Nan battles the corpse of Emery and twins. Driven mad with grief, Eastlake shoots Nan with the harpoon, blaming her for everything, and because we're not supposed to like him at this moment, he drops the N-word. Chapter 20, Percy. In the end, it's a race against time as Edgar plans on submerging her in fresh water. Uh, like many Stephen King villains before her, Pennywise, the Overlook, and Tack come to mind. She tries to deal with Edgar, offering him wealth and fame as the artist of the century. They manage to submerge her in the flashlight in a fun scene that's full of ghosts, crypts, skeletons, and moonlight. Chapter 21, The Shells by Moonlight. Fittingly, King resurrects his ending of Pet Cemetery, which featured a dead child coming back to the father, and in this case, of Ilsa returning to Edgar. And just like Gage, she's not the person, but an animated corpse, this one made of sand. It's a fitting ending to this haunting story, and King doesn't have to pretend that this scene is supposed to be tense, because it's not. It's just sad. Whether it's Ilsa or not, the second the silver touches the sand daughter, it explodes, finally leaving Edgar all alone. Chapter 22, June. Edgar and Wireman dump Percy into a freshwater lake and discuss the five acts to a human life, Wireman telling Edgar he's beginning Act 3. It's the summation of the primary theme of the novel. Now, King does not end this novel on a triumphant note, slipping in the fact that Edgar never sees Wireman alive again, and concludes with his final painting of Duma Key being washed away in a hurricane. So, uh... Guys, let's talk about uh, artistry before I get into my final thoughts. I just want to talk about what King is doing here in terms of talking about being an artist. Now, this is a uh, the second novel in a row where he's talking about the magic of the craft. Okay, so here he's talking about physical physical art. Um, in Lisi's story, he talked about just being artistic and the, the different avenues that art, art artistry can take. Um, and with, with Scott Landon, it was all about the writing experience, which makes sense because Stephen King is a writer and he has many times written about uh, writers' writing. So in Lisi's story, it was all about the word pool, uh, the myth pool, where the artistic types go to draw upon their inspiration and how in our everyday lives we unknowingly just maybe pull a handful like a cupful a palmful from the the word pool it's why we have euphemisms that are that are shared across the world we're all dipping um our toes into the world pool and then here um he continues to explore the the magic of the craft um and imagination and the pull of art and the importance of art and the power of art and he just peppers these incredible examinations and musings on what artistry means and uh, how it affects the artist and the struggle and how it overtakes us completely and we get lost in a frenzy and in a fury of the artistic endeavor itself. And um, on page 656, um, he writes... Just looking at it made me feel like I was losing my mind, Jack said. Do you understand that, Edgar? Of course, Libet had a very powerful imagination back in the day. What happened to it then? She forgot how to use it. Jesus, Jack said, that's horrible. Yes, and I think that that kind of forgetting is easy, which is even more horrible. 
So now, just talking about like the power of imagination there and how awful it is to lose imagination. Um, that kids, they, they kind of come built, and we've seen this in It, with, um, with their imaginations just fully loaded and along the way um, they, they, they lose their ammunition, so to speak. Now, what's interesting here is that King isn't just writing about the craft of artistry or just writing about imagination, but has crafted another villain that uses imagination as a weapon. Percy is presented as a Lovecraftian creature, but she's also one with a twist. She's a Lovecraftian creature that molests imagination. If Lovecraft monsters broke your brain, um, King has taken them uh, to break your soul. In The Regulators, an all-powerful entity latched onto a child's mind, and the result was the perversion of that child's imagination. The Dark Half explored the dangers of an active mind and how it can summon ghosts that never lived before. The Clown and It fed off children's imaginations. The Tommyknockers supercharged everyone's creative thinking. So Percy really is just the latest in a long line of creatures to either abuse artistic talent uh, or raw imagination itself. Now guys, um, let's talk about fatherhood. King has written about being a parent before. The struggles of young parenthood in The Shining, uh, the, the strain of placing the needs of the self over the needs of the child in The Gunslinger, the, the loss of a child in Pet Cemetery. But I would say that Dumaki is the first novel where he truly explores the relationships between a father and his children and the love that springs from it. The love that Edgar and Ilsa have for one another is genuine and it's deeply moving. And, um, sorry, just a tab keeps popping up. And as much as the novel is about second chances, it's just as much, if not more so, about fathers and daughters. Which makes sense as King weaves in Persephone from Greek mythology into the story. Now, remember that Persephone was the daughter of Demeter, a goddess abducted by Hades, effectively making her the queen of the underworld. Um, it makes sense that King follows this thread and repurposes her as a vengeful being, having been abducted to a hellish existence, and as a result, punishes others with her same fate. Every death is an abduction if you really look at it, and it all revolves around fathers and daughters, with the antagonist of a famous daughter who was also abducted. So guys, I'm going to get to my um, quote that I think is kind of summarizes the, the novel, and that comes on page 492. Art is memory, Edgar. There's no simpler way to say it. The clearer the memory, the better the art, the purer. These paintings, they break my heart, and then they make it new again. How glad I am to know they were done at Salmon Point, no matter what. Art is memory, Edgar. There is no simpler way to say it. The clearer the memory, the better the art, the purer. The paintings, they break my heart, then make it new again. That's just such a great way of just describing what art is. All right, guys, now it is time for Easter eggs. So Easter eggs are all the little shout-outs to other Stephen King works, and... Um, the first is, as Edgar and Elsa progress into the wild of Dumaki, they're overcome by illness, and the word that crosses Edgar's mind is char. Now, for fans of the Dark Tower series, you'll remember that the uh, mid-world uh, word char um, is synonymous with death, which fits in perfectly here with Dumaki. 
Number two, um, at one point he writes, life is a wheel. If you wait long enough, it always comes back around to where it started, which is his, probably the, the theme that he has explored the most um, in his works in um, seen before in It, in The Stand, and most famously in the Dark Tower series where he named it Ka. And then we have Stephen Kingisms. So we have our uh, tricks and traits and tropes that we see from Stephen King book to Stephen King book, the first of which is a supernatural entity reshaping reality itself. In this regard, Percy is very, very similar to the creature Tack as seen in The Regulators. Number two, red-clad villain. We've seen this with Rose Matter and, more importantly, with The, the Crimson King. Number three, the past-threatening... Um, the present. We've seen this before in Bag of Bones. Um, I'm sorry, the threat, sorry, the, the past threatening the children of the present. Now we have seen this before in, in Bag of Bones. Um, number four, twins. Uh, I don't think this is the first time that we have seen creepy dead twins in a Stephen King novel. Um, and then we have the dream. Edgar has the, the Stephen King dream, and the Stephen King dream is something we have seen time and time and time again. Child being abducted at the mall. Uh, Candy Brown abducts his victim at the mall, much like the character in Popsy abducted the vampire child. Number eight, the evil doll. We have seen the evil doll here, as well as the X-Files episode Chinga, which was written by Stephen King. Evil frogs. Here we have the big boy plus rainy season, in which a horde of razor-toothed uh, frogs pour down from out of the sky. Number 10, draw and erase. They speculate if a young Elizabeth had tried to get rid of Percy first by drawing her and then erasing her, something which we see in the pages of the Dark Tower at one point. Number 11 is voice in the drain and toilet. Percy speaks to Ilsa through the drain and toilet, much like a much more famous Stephen King villain that we all know. And number 12, best friends reuniting in Mexico. Wireman is relocating to Mexico and invites Edgar. Um, which is Shades of Andy and Red from Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. So, final thoughts, guys. Duma Key continues King's ponderous look at life filtered through a lens of supernatural. Or, think of it this way. Um, his earlier novels are cups of coffee, and the horror elements are the sugar and milk. So his earlier novels are sweet, sugary, creamy caffeination. Um, but now, now he just wants to, to serve black coffee with a splash of milk, maybe half a sugar. Tastes change over time, and Duma Key is an example of this. First, the bulk of it is just one conversation after the next after the next. It could very easily just be repurposed as a play. And secondly, the horror element is only there to serve the character and theme. Like I've said before, this is not a story about the mysteries of the deep. This is a story about life after divorce. When the ship that you've built together crashes on the rocks and your partner rows away, leaving you behind to make this deserted island your home. And King does an incredible job at doing this. I strongly recommend Duma Key. And though I'm not going to be reading a lot of the Stephen King novels that I have read um, during this uh, podcast experiment, because I have read them before and i have analyzed them deeply for the purpose of this podcast i am 99.9 percent .9 sure that i will definitely read duma key again um, at some point in my life 
Alright guys, um, so I am done with Duma Key, and make sure that you stick around next week as I jump into Stephen King's uh, um, short story collection just after sunset. So make sure that you stick around for that. And in the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here again where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Yes, I have found me home. I have found me home. You can have the rest of everything I I have found me a home Yes, I